Hey everybody, this is Chris from The Watch. Thanks for listening today. Just want to let you know that The Ringer has a new podcast. It's Larry Wilmore's Black on the Air. We're so excited about this one. You can subscribe to that wherever you get podcasts. Larry Wilmore's Black on the Air podcast. The first episode is with the incredible, legendary television producer, Norman Lear. And he's got some really exciting stuff planned. Uh, The first episode is up Thursday. So make sure you go subscribe, check that out. And let's get into this episode of The Watch. Hey guys, this is a special episode of The Watch where Andy and I sat down with Veep showrunner David Mandel for the entire episode. Now, we we just did an episode with a member of the Veep team, uh, Timothy Simons, from I think a week or, week or so ago, uh, Monday or two ago. Um, and you can check that out if you want to hear Tim and, and, and hear all what it's like to work on Veep as an actor. But David talked to us a lot about working on Veep as a showrunner, and not only as a showrunner, but a showrunner who kind of came in and in a relief pitcher role. He he took over the show for uh, Armando Iannucci after several glorious years uh, under Iannucci's watch, and Iannucci's the creator of the show, and, and you know his work in British television laid the groundwork for what Veep became. Uh, David took over, and they've had you know they haven't missed a beat. It's become a different kind of show, and we talked to him a lot about that. But uh, David is a, an experienced hand at television, as as we learned and as we we talked about. Obviously, he was worked on Seinfeld. He has worked on Curb Your Enthusiasm, and my favorite parts of the podcast are definitely hearing uh, all the war stories from uh, working with Larry David and Jerry Seinfeld on those comedy institutions. So it was an awesome chat. Uh, Thank you so much to David for stopping by. Uh, Andy and I will be back on Monday to talk leftovers and uh, a bunch of other stuff. So enjoy the podcast with David Mandel, and we'll talk to you Monday. I need sports to have to clear the room. Stand up and walk now. Congratulations on another uh, great season of Veep. Oh, thank you so much. Um, We wanted to talk to you, well, about a whole, whole mess of things. Do you mind if I start topical, Chris? Go for it. I, I figured you would. I wasn't going to, but then, you know, like, we, like we, we... How topical? Well, politics today. Uh-oh. Um, I feel like we should... We, if we haven't pissed them off with restaurant talk on sitcoms, we should go right into politics. Today, we saw the government do something. Mm-hmm. Uh, the House passed a bill that was uh, not vetted uh, by anyone that seems actively in, designed to, to hurt people. Yes, although uh, I will argue, and yeah. believe me, I'm not defending any sure. of them. I believe at a certain point, the arm twisting, which obviously we didn't see or hear, yeah. was, please just vote for this thing so that we can say we actually passed a bill. Right. And this bill will have no relation to anything. Right. So while I am horrified, while I am disgusted, yeah. while I think every person who voted yes for this should be held accountable <laughs> yes. because they were voting very specifically for things that just were you know, monstrous and, you know, borderline eugenicalnessly <laughs> yeah. something. Um, I also believe that at some point or another, this ha- this is not on earth. This is simply, they just wanted to pass something the Senate so it can go it to the Senate and then so- they'll fix it, I guess. This is the world's best possible answer because what you've given me is you've cracked the window into the Veep worldview well, answer. It, it, because- it is a very cynical worldview where the what you're voting on doesn't matter. It's just that we did vote. That, that right. At least at 100 right. and whatever we're at, 110 days, wherever they yeah. are, they finally passed a piece of land. That's what I was looking victory. for because yes. what I was going to yeah. ask was... And this this is a way to get into the yeah. season as a whole, but I'm looking at this from a very like my dander is way, way, way up, and I'm looking at this as this is cruelty, you, you know. Get an and, extra button and on the characters. Today. No, I'm gonna. <laughs> this you guys can't handle this. Uh, this is cruelty. This is this is you know. And it is. And it is. But 
but what I was going to say is that the characters on Veep have many flaws. Abject cruelties, and among them, they are often more incompetent or venal. Correct, but I do think they would pass this vote without any sense of anything. With I mean, the arm it, twisting I mean, behind yes, the scenes. Yes, exactly, because, it's, again, it's about the passing of the bill. It's it has nothing to do political, with what it is. It's political theater, yeah. and that's something that Veep does and very well. And it continues, though, I guess, which is a, sort of a non-Veep thing, which I guess, I guess doesn't matter. It continues, for at least the Republicans, as far as I'm concerned, to pass bills that are aimed squarely at their key supporters in actually like taking things from them, hurting them. And yet those supporters, like, like, I guess just like the most, you know, horrifically battered wife in the world just keeps coming back for more. Yeah. I I have very little money, but please take it. No, (laughs) no. Send my kids off to war, take away my health care. And while you're doing that, you know, give tax uh, breaks to the really rich people. I mean, I just, I, I'm baffled by it. But how much do you think Monica and Rachel's house would have gone for in 2017 dollars? Like, with the tax credits, probably from this. I like to think that Monica, and I never got into this, but that perhaps, like, the grandmother character mm. had owned it or was renting yeah. it. Oh, Elliot and then, Gould's mother. Yes, perhaps. exactly. And then Monica moved in there and spent like the required three, two or three years yes. to get sort of like on the lease. Just, and then they sent her well, off. Yes, yeah. yeah. so I've been thinking a lot about this. Because there's still a couple of apartment deals like that where it's just yeah. like, yeah, this is $400 a month on like Riverside because, yeah. you know, my aunt owned it. And just it never got changed over. Yeah, Ellie Gould's mom owns a lot of places. And I mean, and this is sort of sad, but his father had this incredible apartment. And to this day, I think he sort of regrets not making a go of it, of moving in to his, when his dad got very ill, Mm. of trying to do home care. Not so much that that would have been easy yeah. or good, but that he this might have apartment. he might have been able to stay on the lease. And not and he loved his father, and his father's a great guy. It has sure. nothing to do with any of that. But that apartment was also a great loss. The things we yeah. do for New York real estate. Yeah. Um, with with this kind of thing today, I mean, I think you've been a, you've been asked about this so much in the press run for this season about the relationship or the role of the Trump. Yeah. Um, how much do you guys at, at this point are you keeping track on day one ten of what's happening? How much does that inform a possible next season or something I mean, like that? Everything kind of informs. I mean, everything informs everything. It does. I can't imagine we would. At no point these days do we specifically do stuff. Yeah. But things inform things, and I guess it's not so much the specifics of the Health Care Act, but you know, it's a lot of the the side talk, the the people mm-hmm. voting who you know waited like uh, what is his name here in, in California, Isa, uh, Isa yeah. who waited to make sure that like like everybody else voted and that his yeah. vote was important yeah. before he sort of reluctantly voted yes. It's those guys that there's sort of a special he circle literally in hell wait for. literally for his friends to yes. jump off a building and before there's those guys, and Yeah, and those guys who I feel like, again, the specifics maybe not, but that's sort of something where, I, like that idea of how long can you wait, where I start to go, maybe that's something. I don't know what it is yeah. yet, but you know, maybe that's something. Because yeah. he literally hoped that their bodies piled below him. And he could just like He would land on them and maybe yes. just slide off the side no, of the mountain. man had a great plan. <laughs> we had Tim Simons on earlier this week, actually, uh, and um, we were talking to him a little bit. I think I mentioned, and I, don't, I, I think he may have disagreed, but I, I sort of like hinted at like this idea of like sort of Selena breaking bad a little bit, or maybe like a darker side of her kind of coming out. And there's a little bit of that in the Georgia episode. You know? I do think in, in sort of towards the end of last season and into the season, and you really did see it. And I think people almost forget about it because it was sort of 
you know, buried in the loss. But in her moments before the loss, you know, in the end mm -hmm. of episode nine, at the end of the documentary, what she was calling Jonah to do was basically to vote for O'Brien, to vote mm -hmm. for the other party's presidential candidate mm -hmm. over, in, a, in theory, yeah. Tom James or mm -hmm. whatever. That's a, I mean, I, I do think as sort of this, the, the, the stakes ratcheted up last season, she got darker. I don't know if she broke bad, yeah, right. but she definitely, the, her trying to cling on to that White House got worse and worse and worse. And I think now you're seeing her sort of suffering those consequences. Yeah. yeah. And I was kind of wondering, I mean, I was talking about this earlier today, completely unrelated about the NBA. And we were talking about how like Greg Popovich has won so many titles, he can kind of afford to... Just he can just mess around. Like one night he can just run an Australian point guard and four power forwards out there. Like I he was can listening do different to somebody things. on the radio, and it was a point that I did love, which was that you have sort of like Popovich and I guess basically like Belichick. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and maybe maybe now a little bit of like uh, uh, what's his name like with the Cubs. Theo, well, yeah. I was gonna say Theo Epstein yeah, also, yeah. Yeah. where basically. No matter what they do, no matter whatever the rule is, like, you know, mm -hmm. don't cross the street without looking two ways. <laughs> that if Belichick just crosses the street and doesn't look both yes. ways, no matter how long you've been raised yes. on that concept, when, and this goes for Popovich, that we all go, hmm, yeah, maybe, he's got a maybe point. there's something new here. And then Malcolm yeah. Gladwell will write a bestseller right about, about it. Exactly. Like, the wisdom of not looking at all. But you're running one of like the most celebrated television comedies of the last 15 years. I mean, I mean yeah. you, can, do you ever feel like you can cross the street now without looking at the light? It's not so much that, but I do. I definitely I, look. Uh, here's the lucky thing for me, and some of it, it comes with just old age, also, which is, you know, there's a time in your life where you're desperate to like make sure you're like doing everybody's notes, and especially when you're in mainstream network television. And I'm not talking so much about Seinfeld, but sort of in the period after Seinfeld, where I was trying to sell my next mm -hmm. thing. Okay. And also very true in the movie industry, where you're desperately like, what are they looking for? How can I please them? Whatever, yeah. whatever. And then at some point. You know, you do reach a point where you don't care if you please them. <laughs> and I'll, I'll tell you a little mini story, which is right before I, I took the Veep job, I had a pilot that I wrote with a couple of friends of mine with uh, a married couple, Scott and Shauna Silveri. Scott now does... Uh, uh, he was. They were both friends writers, mm -hmm. and then Scott, Scott did getting on. Is that what it's called? No, go on. Uh, he did the, the Matt yeah, Perry the Matt one, Perry uh, show. and then now is doing Speechless. Oh right, yeah, which is doing very well um, and a good show. And we wrote a show together that was called The Mistake, and the basic idea. And we were purposely doing this. We wrote a a traditional multicam mm -hmm. sitcom because mm -hmm. that's. I still miss it. I love mm -hmm. it. I love the audience. I love that Nate, that sort of aspect of theater. But hearing the laughs, mm -hmm. there is nothing better than that. And it's something you miss a little bit when you do single camera. Mm -hmm. So we wrote a, you know, we attempted to write what we thought would be the funniest, uh, you know, multicam sitcom we could. And the basic idea was that a couple kind of around my wife and mine's age, the Silveris are a touch younger, um, which I'm basically, I'm 46 now, and my wife is, uh, well, just about 47. Old, um, old age, uh, by yeah, the way. No, old age. Well, yeah. come on. Um, and basically, as their youngest child is going off to college, and this is the pilot, they accidentally get pregnant and have the baby. And thus, the by the end of the show, that is the mistake. Yeah. And the show is about them as 
old second time around parents with this young baby and whatever. This is gold. Um, and people liked it. People really liked it. The, 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 the studio liked it. The network liked it. Everybody liked it. Where we couldn't agree was casting. We just never could agree on. We couldn't casting. find the right baby. Well, exactly. <laughs> exactly. We couldn't find the right two babies. <laughs> um, you know, and it was a very you know simple parting of the ways. They had what I would call traditional. And who's network. they in this case? The network. The network. You couldn't agree with the network. Yes, you and exactly. The, you, um, yeah. the, the the network. Um, I, I won't. I don't want to say any names, but their initials are CBS. Mm. <laughs> um, and uh, they just had what I considered to be very traditional casting TV ideas, which is, which is good looking over funny. Yeah. And we were putting up funny people who they found millions of reasons to not like, but my guess sometimes was they didn't think they were good looking enough, although mm -hmm. no one ever s expressed that sure. out loud. Yeah. They, it was simply, we agreed to disagree. I don't know what else to say. I'm sure they think they're right. I think I'm right. That all being said, there were definitely a moment or two, because we tried twice, where I think if we had gone with certain of their people, we would have gotten this pilot made. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And all I can tell you is that in some ways, probably 1998, David Mandel, sort of off of Seinfeld, looking to get a show on the air, probably rolls the dice sure. with their choices sure. yeah. and makes a a terrible show because I can only tell you these people would have these were active. What I my, myself and my old writing partners, uh, Jeff Schaefer and Alec Berg, mm -hmm. um, and Alec does <coughs> Silicon Valley now, yeah. and Jeff did the uh, the, the, league, the league, and now uh, is doing the new <clears throat> the new season of Curb. Um, uh, basically, they, these were what we like to call enemies of comedy. There are comedy generators, yeah. friends of comedy, and then enemies <laughs> yes. of comedy. These were oh, it's enemies. Like lawful good, yes, chaotic exactly, neutral. Exactly. This is like full chaotic evil, like yeah. no rhyme or reason to their just <laughs> no good of it. And what what would have what what we would have ended up with was a terrible pilot that would have been forgotten because it was a terrible pilot. And one of the things that makes me happy when I go to sleep at night is that we didn't make it. Yeah. And it's still a really funny script that was never made mm. as opposed to a shitty pilot that's been forgotten. <laughs> and once in a blue moon, yeah. someone brings it up. And it's not about the bringing it up. It's about that it's still pure and it's still mm. something, which is a very long-winded way of saying... Um, I don't even remember your original question. Are you Greg but that Popovich? Basically, yeah. yeah. I mean, I don't know if I'm Greg Popovich, but the wonderful thing that I was taught by first uh, uh, Al Franken and Jim Downey at Saturday Night Live and then Larry and Jerry, and then it was really, you know, really with Larry, especially. These are Curb, terrible mentors. Terrible, by the way. terrible mentors. And by the way, it's the same. Well, it's Julia's attitude, too, which is we are going to make. Am I allowed to curse? Absolutely. Please. Uh, we're we're going to make a fucking funny show. That's all we care about. We're not going to care. We don't care if we offend you. We don't care if we don't offend you. We're just making a show that makes us laugh mm -hmm. and we're going to do whatever we can to do that. And therefore, we don't care. We just don't care. And we're going to do things that are interesting to us. And we're going to make her not the president of the United States, even if you don't like that. And right. what I was going to say was what I have sort of found a little bit is. And it's true, I think, and I remember it with Larry going back to when he killed Susan. When he killed Susan, there was sort of that initial, oh, my God, how can yeah. you kill Susan? Oh, my God, how horrible, blah, 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 blah. And you cut to like five years later, and it's like, oh, killing Susan was one of the really great things. And so sometimes I do believe the TV audience needs to be taught a little bit. Yeah. They need to be taught that this is okay, that this is right, it, and that it's good that the show is changing. So I don't sit around thinking I'm Belichick. I'm just trying to, honestly, I'm trying to make my self laugh. I'm trying to make Julia laugh. I'm trying to make my writers laugh. And I'm trying to make a couple of my college roommates laugh. Yeah. And beyond that, I don't care.
I think that's very. It's interesting what you're saying um, about uh, the example with Susan on Seinfeld because what you, this, the scenario you described reminds me a lot of Twitter in general, honestly, which is where people people's first reaction is often not how they genuinely feel. It's a rehearsed reaction. Yes, I think I'm offended. Let's look around and see right. if anyone Are else is offended, offended here. Yeah. And then slowly as it actually right. settles in, it's like, well, maybe it was funny or maybe this doesn't matter as much or maybe I'm just borrowing this. And I'm talking, you know, I'm talking even just big ideas like being offended by like her not being in the White House right. as opposed to, by the way, which we get, which is and it's funny with Veep in particular, which is we may, we're such an equal opportunity offender yeah. Yeah. With dialogue. But it's when the sort of the, the bottle spins and lands on you yeah, and you it's like, like, well, it. wait a second. Yeah. Like I laughed at the Irish joke and the Jew <laughs> joke yeah. and I really laughed at that cripple joke. But you cannot say that about homosexuals. Right. I mean, and you just go, well, wait a second. It was, yeah. it was your turn. Yeah. Um, let's go back to that. Sure. Just the Veep in general, because. Um, you know, for, for listeners who don't realize it, you took took over the show yes. a year ago in season. I was a fan of the show, and uh, basically they did four sh- four seasons, yep. basically with an almost I think yeah all British writers created yeah. by Armando Iannucci, brilliant writer, uh, sketch writer, brilliant everything writer, and now I think moving into directing a whole bunch too. Um, and basically, he was tired of the London to mm-hmm. Baltimore commute and. Uh, I knew Julia from our, you know, the mm-hmm. old days, and then also um, uh, Casey Bloys, who's the head mm-hmm. of HBO now. Um, you know, sort of, I think in a weird way, the Curb guys were kind of the HBO bench because yeah, Alec went into Silicon Valley to help when they were redoing the pilot mm-hmm. and kind of went there, and I was sort of called in for this. Yeah. And I'm guessing if there had been another show, Jeff would be on that so, one. So we yeah. owe Larry not making up his mind, basically. Believe me, I mean, it's, it is a credit to Larry, and of course, therefore, of course, how awful I felt when he finally decided to, <laughs> to do, do it and season. it lined up far too perfectly with the Veep season because yeah. I was like, well, maybe there's a no, nope, nope, not a way. Yeah. This is, um, we can say this now because you're now a season and a half into your tenure on the show. The show won the Emmy last year again. The show is truly astounding. Um, Much appreciated. This was, I can't believe you pulled this off. Yeah, I, I, it's, look, I'm not going to lie. It's kind of amazing. I didn't think a lot about it when I took it. I'm and there's some that. of that is comedy writer ego. Yeah. And, I certainly, you know, whatever the averagely large comedy writer ego is, I'm sure I have an even bigger one. Um, you know, um, I didn't worry about it. I worried one minute when they when they won the Emmy, basically yeah. right before we were about to shoot our my, our first episode slash the first yeah. one I was yeah. writing. I did take a minute of, Oy. and then I didn't think about it, and I knew what we were doing was good, and I knew. Right from the get go, I knew the I knew it was all good. Were you and sitting I, there with the Emmys like, come on, Louie? No, like, I just like, I honestly <laughs> they were nice enough. I think someone they invited me and I was like, I'm not going to this. Yeah. I'm, this yeah. is their night. I'm not gonna be a part of this. Just I don't wanna ruin bomb. it or help it or whatever. Um I was actually more shocked. I was I was thrilled that they won. I was actually shocked that Armando didn't win for the uh, testimony episode. That was actually yeah. the shock for me that, that he lost that because I just thought that was fantastic. Um, but uh, like for, like I said, for a minute, I was just like, oh, God. And then somewhere in my head, it was like, well, if worse comes to worse, hopefully Julia will win another one and no one yeah. will care if the show doesn't win right. one because, you know, it has one. And also, by the way, I can only, I can simply say, you know, I, I and, and I don't think I'm touting, you know, laurels that shouldn't be touted. Uh, I went to the Emmys many times. I went many times with Seinfeld mm-hmm. and we lost. Seinfeld mm-hmm. only won, I believe, Best Show once, which when, of course, you look back, is a crime. Mm-hmm. And I've been many times with Curb Your Enthusiasm, which is still currently oh for however mm-hmm. many. <laughs> so, 
losing is very natural to me, and especially <laughs> losing feeling like I was on the best show. Yeah. So I, I wasn't worried, but I will also say winning it was really nice. I bet. <laughs> yeah. But when I, what I mean, though, yeah. is it's not just that you maintained the quality, certainly you did in the eyes of the Emmy voters. And what impressed me the most is that you have absolutely, absolutely made it your own show. And by you, I mean the collective you, you and your team no, that I came in. That. It, it is a different it show. It is a different show. It's the, it's the and same. That's healthy, though, I think. It's the same DNA. But I've said this before. I think if I had tried to mimic, mm -hmm. which I know what he did. I mean, you know, we. I think we're different writers, mm -hmm. by the way. Armando yeah. and I are just very different writers. And I don't know his entire process, but I come at it very much more outline, 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 and then you write. And I believe from what I can tell from my from working with people that have worked with him, he is much more of you write many, many, many drafts mm. and you find it in the work and you it's a very much an alive thing. Mm -hmm. And our thing definitely, you know, changes and gets better from being on its feet and is still very alive. But I believe that the skeleton of that outline is always there. And that's my Seinfeld and Curb sort of training. So Anyway, what I was going to say was we're very different writers. I think there's a uh, there is a difference between American sensibilities and British sensibilities. There are subject matters yeah. that they don't they're not as interested in. There are subject matters that I'm very interested in. Race is a biggie. Mm -hmm. That's a little bit of a no no over in the UK. They don't kind of touch it. I, I wish they could have seen your hand I gestures. Can't, you know, sorry, <laughs> uh, you can only imagine how good the hand gestures were. But uh, I can't get enough of it. I just feel like I mean, especially watching where the country was, let alone where it is now. But watching. I, for me, the, the 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 growing insane prejudices under Obama because he happened to be an African American mm -hmm. man that was president of the United States, and then the culmination of that, which is basically, I don't know, not to put too fine a point on it, but there are many reasons Hillary Clinton probably lost. One of them was though that I think a lot of white people got sick of Democrats, seemingly in their minds, only being the party mm -hmm. of you know, minorities and, you know, yeah. sex minorities and right. all of that kind of stuff. And I find it horrifying. And so race is something I'm very obsessed with and getting it to be, you know, mm -hmm. getting it to be a part of the show. Um, and that's something they just, something they were not mm -hmm. as interested in. And I think I had a little bit of an opportunity as sort of an outsider to the show of coming in with my own sort of set of what I thought was interesting and what I wanted to learn more about. Plus it was season five. And again, I'll, we'll never know what, he would have done what they would have done. But for me, it was an opportunity to dig a little deeper into who they were as characters. And that was definitely something I think we did in season five. Exactly of that. Who they were, their lives, not just the mother episode with Selena, which obviously people really dug, but also even stuff like Mike and his babies mm -hmm. and things like that. Oh, yeah. And I thought Matt sort of on that roller coaster of, you know, adopting, then losing the Chinese <laughs> adoption, but then finding out he was having twins and sort of that. He had just such a wonderful, it was so heartbreaking when he lost the adoption, but yeah. then also there was such that everyman quality to him of getting the pregnancy, but then finding out it's twins. And, you know, you could watch his brain doing the mental calculations yeah. of what that was going to cost. Yeah. And then also then, of course, getting... Uh, Ellen, the Chinese baby, who of course wasn't a baby, but more of a six-year-old. But watching him with that kind of stuff, that none of that has anything to do with politics, yeah. if you actually think about it. Right. And I was very proud it, to sort of bring some of that into the show. That is the American, to my mind, when you said that the difference between American yeah. and British sensibilities in terms of sitcoms, I think one of the great American traditions in sitcoms comes from the longer seasons. 
um, in that you have to dig deeper. You have to lean on the ensemble. That's you have interesting. To... I had not thought about it in that way, but I, I, I would agree with that. That I oh, think good. there is more character in a 22 episode. Y- 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 by arc. necessity. Yes. And, and then furthermore, and this is a point that Tim brought up when we spoke to him, uh, your passion for mixing and matching characters and seeing what sparks, which is another hallmark of long-running successful comedies. Well, I just, you know, for me, I felt like, and again, this is not a criticism. I was a fan of the show. It was one of the few shows on TV, certainly a few comedies, that my wife and I were watching You know, every Sunday night. That was a show we watched together. Mm-hmm. So I, again, I'm a fan and I'm there. But I definitely felt like one of the reasons I wanted her out of the White House was to shake things up, that it didn't just become at the time, for lack of a better word, the screw-up of the week. Now, I say that even though there's still the screw-up of the yeah. week, but... In some ways, it just I just I didn't want to get trapped in that world. Mm-hmm. And I just feel like you have to you have to grow. I mean, I just think you have to. Do you not watch a lot of comedies on TV because not a lot of comedies speak to you or because it's like like you would be like a, base, a baseball factory, player watching baseball when they go I home. check everything out because I sort of feel like it's my job. Mm-hmm. I mean, so I definitely check everything out and I give everything a couple of episodes. And there's a handful I still watch. Um, it's harder for me. It either works for me or it very quickly doesn't. And I feel like that's, it's not like, as you said, like you don't want to watch baseball because you play all day or yeah. whatever, or the chef that doesn't want to eat their food. It's, 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 it's definitely like, I guess just if it's not, if it's not interesting, if it's not surprising, if it's not, you know, and and I and it's hard to say this because obviously if you have a long running 22 episode show every week, they're not going to reinvent the wheel. Yeah. Uh, so I'm not talking about reinventing the wheel. It's not like on any given week I want characters, you know, killing each other and switching places, although I do love that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I guess I just mean surprise me with the jokes. If a show gets to that point where I'm saying the jokes before mm-hmm. they're saying it, it's probably time for me to stop watching it. Do you feel like, you know, because as somebody who's such a veteran in the industry, we, you know, he and I talk about television on a week-to-week basis, and sometimes I think we get a little lost, like, the vocabulary that we're describing it with or even the sort of philosophies behind it are only like five years old. Like you'd think that everything started from a a viewer perspective before David Chase, nobody had this idea kind of thing. Um, but I, cause I was going to make a, ask a question that was like, well, you know, you started on something that was so traditional, like Seinfeld. So and I was like, but Seinfeld was anything but traditional. Well, I mean, it was traditional in the sense of, you know, we had a, a tape night and we, you know, had an audience mm-hmm. and it was a very, you know, very much the, the, the classic sort of multicam sort of system that, you know, whatever Desi Arnaz laid yeah. down with I Love Lucy. Um, as the show went, got going and went further and further, there was a progression of the, the levels of complication of the structure, which made the scene shorter, mm-hmm. made everything faster. It depended more, I think, on structure than on individual jokes and more and more started to be filmed so that by the end it was almost practically often like half uh, yeah. single cam and half sort of being yeah. in front of the audience. Um, and obviously, it you know, one of my, you know, my favorite things about it was that the willingness to sort of push the genre. I mean, you know, it, that's the, you know, again, think back to whatever you want to say, 95, 96, whatever. What other show was going to let me do sort of like the bizarro idea? Mm-hmm. Uh, what other show was going to let me and Peter Melman do a backwards episode? You know what I mean? I'm mm-hmm. just simply saying that was a credit to what those guys built, and by the way, Larry probably wouldn't have, certainly wouldn't have probably done the backwards episode at all. I think I could have gotten away with the Bizarro episode <laughs> with Larry, but not the backwards. But you know, obviously, the show changed when Larry left. And but that all being said, that there was there was certainly an inventiveness there, as as laid down by like the Chinese restaurant episode and the parking lot episode, that was at least 
willing to push against yeah. form. I, yeah. I have to say, you also, I believe you were responsible for the movie phone episode. Is that correct? I was, yeah, yeah. I, I think about uh, Kramer's voice saying, why don't you just tell me what you want to go see? <laughs> I think about that multiple times a day. It Michael, rings in my head. Michael Richards does not get enough credit for things like that. I think people <laughs> sort of dismiss him sometimes a little bit for the, well, obviously what happened later, but yeah. the tripping and the whatever. But uh, God, the, why don't you just tell me? Yeah, no, it's, uh, <laughs> it's unbelievable. Yeah. And, and I, I also thought it was an interesting window into my wife's psychology because on the way here, we were in the car together and I mentioned that you had done that episode. And she said, is it because we have kids that I haven't gone to a movie in so long that I, I don't know if people still use movie phone? Well, I don't even think it, I'm not sure it exists. I'm sure it doesn't, I think it's she like thought a, yeah. it did. Yeah, she no, thought she could still, that's a really you know, good question. Like, I mean, know, they have a website now and they have like, they used to have like videos and stuff, right. but. I think it's pretty, yeah. yeah. Like, so our I kids was kind of wondering. That we were like, talking about that today because we were. I was Lucy wondering, like, bonbons. what are what's the sort of growth? What's the ceiling for a local weather guy? Like, because do you really like, especially out here? But like, do you if you have a <laughs> phone, funny. do you you really need to wait to, for six twenty three for the weather right, to come on? Weather, exactly. uh, if you think he's handsome, you do. Because I used to remember my mom just being like, "Well, don't don't get up yet. I need to see what the weather is." You know, <laughs> and I, I was, I'll like, tell you how to get dressed. <laughs> yeah. <Wait>. Yes, <laughs> yeah, but please wait. Don't do it yet. Hey guys, just going to take a quick break here with our from our conversation with David to go to a quick word from our sponsors. Hey everybody, just want to take a quick break to tell you a little about Sonos's Playbase. You know, I've been sitting at home watching uh, the NBA playoffs almost every night, and then I you know, switch over to some television or watch a movie a little bit after that just to come down from it all. And you know what? The Sonos Playbase has just turned my living room, my shabby little living room, into a home theater. Uh, the Playbase has a low-profile design that practically disappears beneath your television. You don't even notice it. Frankly, it makes my television look better. And the setup is a breeze. All you need is one power cord, one optical cord, and then the Sonos app guides you through every step. There's no complicated instructions. There's no algorithms to learn. Everything sounds better on Playbase, whether it's games, television, movies, whatever you're trying to watch, it sounds awesome on Playbase. See for yourself. Go to Sonos.com, S-O-N-O-S.com, and learn more. Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by Showtime's Twin Peaks. 25 years ago, Twin Peaks was a pop culture phenomenon that captivated America and changed television forever. Everyone was asking, who killed Laura Palmer? And starting May 21st, the story continues in the new Showtime limited event series, Twin Peaks, directed by David Lynch. Kyle MacLachlan returns as FBI Special Agent Dale Cooper, along with more original cast members in their unforgettable roles. Twin Peaks premieres May 21st at 9, only on Showtime. Download the Showtime app and start your free trial now. All right, guys, now we're going to head back into our conversation with David about Veep, Seinfeld, Curb, and everything else. Veep has a somewhat shorter episode order, you know, obviously than Seinfeld, but... And yet, oddly, it takes longer, but go on. Yeah? Yeah. That's... Well, I, I, I guess I was going to ask, you know, when something happens on Atlanta, and mm-hmm. it's one of ten episodes, the magnification of, of people's attention to, oh, well, they just did this amazing thing, and they used one-tenth of their season on this incredible right. tangent. And that, you know, what you're saying about those episodes of Seinfeld, where they just kind of, like, flow into the slipstream of a 22-episode order, and they... Did mm-hmm. you did you feel like and you didn't have the feedback too I suppose in terms of the internet like it was you, different we didn't have the internet but we definitely I mean it was it was different though in its own weird way because like the the episodes would air on Thursday and uh, and I was certainly uh, I was a single guy without children so I can't explain it because again I'm it's very much dating yourself but like you'd hear it like on morning DJs talking about it on <laughs> Friday morning yeah and not to get all water coolie because obviously I was working in a 
TV office, yeah. but like you'd get online at a movie theater on like a Friday or Saturday night and you would hear people talking about your episode. Did you ever and Marshall McLuhan someone online? No, I never <laughs> said you do, you do not understand when you're all I happen to have Larry about, David yeah, right here. Exactly, yeah. no. But, uh, but certainly enjoyed it. Yeah, yeah. Certainly enjoyed it, yeah. I, a lot of what you're describing in terms of the, the risk-taking DNA of Seinfeld, in addition to the actual DNA of the brain trust behind it, you and all the people you've mentioned, enormous influence on TV today, on what we consider to be contemporary prestige TV. Yeah, I think there's a Great. definitive line yeah. from Seinfeld to Curb to modern single yeah. camera. And to what people yeah. consider yeah. good comedy today. And by today. the way, I also would say not just... Uh, and I've said this before, and he has yet to correct me, um, and I never want to put words in his mouth, but uh, I think Judd Apatow was very influenced by Curb yeah. and sort of it, both the shooting style but also the improv nature and whatnot. And so I think it's also had a very big effect on modern movie comedy. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So what I'm wondering is, um, do you feel, from your perspective of having been there during those during Seinfeld and today, how much of the how much of this business has changed? Obviously, Tape night is not something you deal with sure. anymore. Obviously, the, uh, this the way TV is uh, discussed in the culture. Some of the some of the money is different. Sure. Um, do you feel professionally it is a straight line because it's just it, it's you and some people in a room telling jokes, or has it really changed as radically internally as it has externally? I mean, I've been very lucky, sort of in my. I guess trajectory and if you you know I sort of was very content to kind of go along doing more curb and stuff and then the veep thing sort of happened it was not of my own mm -hmm. making and you know <clears throat> in some world where uh, the mistake my my pilot got made I'm sure I'd be you know complaining yeah. or whatever and it would be a very different story um um, it's a relatively straight line for me, but I do think it has changed. You know, Seinfeld at the time was sort of this weird exception to the rule in mm -hmm. both how it got onto television, its sort of path through the late night division and whatnot. And in some ways, it's like the internet companies took a lesson from the late night division. They're all sort of the late night division. So the fact that there are all of these... In can like I can, just of, to tell yeah. people who don't oh, realize sorry, that? Yeah. So it was not developed by NBC's comedy department. Correct. There was a little bit of money just carved out basically, by a true Rick believer. Basically, Rick Ludwin was the head of yeah. uh, Late Night, and they had Jerry under a deal basically to stop him from ho uh, hosting a Tonight Show on another network. Right. Oh. And Jerry's work ethic was such that he didn't just want the money. He sort of wanted to do something. So he wanted to do a sitcom. And so they were like, okay, why don't you make four of them? You know, I mean, it was just yep. crazy. But, you know, to they Rick Ludwig's credit. And they, yeah. they put it on the summer. And then yeah. Julia wasn't even in the first one. And somehow this ends up being the most popular show on television. And it was very much, it's a, you know, the original selling device of it in some ways was, this is how a comedian gets his material. Right. Which obviously deviated from soon thereafter. But old, originally that was sort of the idea was, you're going to see this little adventure. And then at the end, he's going to kind of do stand-up that sort of seemed to come from yeah. it. I mean, that was its gimmick, if you will. Yeah. But, anyway. but I liked the point you were making, which is that that idea of, well, we're just going to try something here. Yeah. That's kind of what Well, that's kind of what, I mean, that's what doing. they're all doing now with, you know, six and 10 and whatever. But it's a, you know, it's a great time with, there's, you know, you can sell your weird idea. I mean, you know, you can find someone for almost anything. I mean, yeah. I, have, mm -hmm. I have a weird idea that is so weird that, like, I mentioned it to people, they go, oh, that was really weird. We can't do that. But even that, I find finally found someone that was like, yeah, we would probably do that. I mean, it was just like, you know, and it was just nutso. Um, but, uh, you know, that, but that's the world. Um, and so that's the good news. The bad news is there's a million shows. Yeah. So that means it's hard to put a staff together because everybody's got a show mm -hmm. or everybody's working somewhere. It's like There was a week this year, actually, the, the last episode of Veep that aired 
when we were trying to find somebody to play one of the two sort of oligarchs that she's sort yeah. of dealing with. We were trying to find somebody to play the scarred guy. The Nikolai, Stephen Fry character. What yeah. became the Stephen yeah. Fry part. Yeah, he was good. And there was like a period of time where we were trying to find people and it felt like every time I brought somebody up, they were on Breaking Bad. Uh, not Breaking Bad. They were on Better Call Saul that week. <laughs> just I, just yeah, that week. <laughs> yeah. Just like it was just they're in New Mexico on Better Call Saul. Yeah. There was, and then it was like, and then there was a period of time where it was like everybody was in London making like the Orient Express, which I guess isn't a TV show. But I mean, it was just like, it's just, it's harder to cast. It's harder to find people because there's so much television. So that's sort of a thing people don't really talk about, but I do think is very true. And the the staff part is particularly difficult. Is I there mean, also, like, I thought I read something about the sort of t- typical trajectory for a television writer, too, where people are selling shows faster, too, right? Yeah, I mean, I think certainly, I mean, this happens all the time, which is I do think people rightly or wrongly, I think sometimes there are very good ideas executed very poorly because perhaps the person with the very good idea wasn't quite ready to make a show. And I do think there is a, I do think show running is a very different skill. I'm, I'm not saying it because I think I can do it and, you know, you can't. It is a different skill. And there are Great writers who are terrible showrunners. Yeah. I don't know I've, how I've talked to, to people that. about yeah. this before, but the things that make someone a good writer, whether in comedy or drama, are often, not as- often are exactly. specifically why you know it's like it's, that it's, level of being on the sort of Asperger scale is exactly yes. what prevents you from being a from good showrunner. From the people skills, yes. management, like uh, negotiating budgets and egos, and all these things that involve being outside of your yeah. own creative muse. Um, I, I loved your idea of people being the enemies of comedy, and I, I realized that. Um, even on some of the great shows of our time, if you got in the room with the people who made them and you got them, you got a few drinks into them or maybe even no drinks at all, they would be like, well, that was the person who was tough to deal with. Oh. And I say this not to get dirt, although yeah. if you want to spread dirt, please. You walked into a, you walked onto a show where I feel like you, only, you have like the Knights Templar of comedy. You yeah. have a yeah. cast that is outrageous, maybe unparalleled. Yeah, no, it's a it's a it's a murderer's row. I mean, it, it really is. And uh, and as it's only grown in some ways, you know, by the time. You know, obviously, Sam, yes. uh, as Sam Richardson, kind of as his as the the, the Richard Splett character became sort of larger, and then Marjorie uh, Clea Duval paired yeah. up with uh, Sarah mm-hmm. Sutherland and Catherine, and they became sort of you know whatever you want to call them, you know, regulars, semi-regulars, whatever. And you add in uh, Congressman Furlong and Will. I mean, there are definitely episodes where it's sort of like, you know, you're trying to go, how do we we have we have. 12 incredible right. people how do we how do we tell a selena meyer story but also well, let them score and the finnish woman i'm sorry is she's oh finishing? god yeah me uh minna yeah. the actresses I oh uh, sally uh, phillips i mean Incredible. that's that's yeah. an insane thing that she just no, comes out and, and off you the bench bring and does her that. in and you worry a little bit about like it's like in that episode we we're bringing her in we were bringing the two sort of georgian characters and at the same time you're going like that's three more and it's just like and at the same but you want to make sure you want to make sure that you know Ben scores and Kent scores. I mean, you definitely you don't want to forget your regulars. Yeah, well, not to make you too much like Popovich, yeah. but you do have, and we talked to Tim about this too. I, I in in uh, in Kevin Dunn and Gary Cole, you have two of the most outrageously talented, just solid. Every yeah. time they are on screen, they are amazing to watch. Whether they are passing or dunking, am I doing the metaphor correctly? That's correct. Yeah. Um, what does of all of all the things that a showrunner has right. to be concerned about? What is that experience like being in a room? You know, you have many things that are on your plate. It's a stressful job. But you know when you write jokes for those two or or certainly Julia or any of these people. No, no. I mean, you know, I think, you know, that is the one thing which is, you know, whether, you know, when we're, when when I, you know, someone's working on their individual script or if we're, you know, sort of gang rewriting and coming up with a joke, 
there are definitely jokes. I mean, I, this is tough because it's sort of like I don't want to ruin anything. I don't want to give anything away. But there is a joke in the tenth episode of this season that uh, that uh, the character Marjorie does that. I feel like it's two years in the making. I'm very <laughs> proud of it. You know what I mean? But I can't, I don't want to ruin it. But I mean, it's, it's, but it's specifically, it's a Marjorie joke. It's a, the way yeah. Clay does yeah. it. And it's sort of like, it's two years in the making with the knowledge that we'll do it once and probably That's never it. do it again. You know what I mean? Can you talk us through a different yeah. joke then? The one that I, I can't sure. stop thinking about from last year was the secret meeting. Yes. That there's the secret meeting afterwards, and then later in the documentary, you reveal right. that there there was, and there was in fact well, a third. Well, you think he, it's there's the there's the secret meeting, right? And then Mike pops back in and goes, "I'm just making sure there isn't another one." Yes. And then in the documentary, it turns out that there, there was. was. Yes. There was. It, that's just that's just that's a symphony. That's beautiful. That made me it, so one of my happy. true favorite moments in that as we were working on the documentary, which was written uh, by Eric Kenward. Uh, who were lucky enough sort of splits his time between we sort of get him for the whole summer. Uh, he, he's one of the producers at SNL, and then mm-hmm. we sort of have him on their off weeks. Um, and, That's a pretty uh, nice life. He's, and, he's bi-coastal. Yeah, he's... exactly. No, it, it works out well. Uh, I mean, I, he's somebody I've been trying to lure to California to work on sitcoms for like a million years. Um, so I was very proud about grabbing him. Um, uh and I was, and so he wrote the episode, and uh, and I directed it. So you know, I'm obviously I'm there for all of them, but it was extra fun, mm-hmm. sort of just yeah. being the director on that as well. But in the writing stages, as we were really sort of thinking about the episode and sort of spending time on it, you know, there were definitely we were kind of going through the the eight previous episodes that existed, sort of trying to find what are these sort of moments that perhaps like there was more mm-hmm. or she could have filmed or what was connected. And then when this Mike idea of Mike being fired sort of came up and him sort of being oblivious to it, that just, <laughs> I wish I could tell you that we had thought of it when we were writing it, that that would be in the, in the doc, but it was more like we had the scene and then realized, Oh, what if there was more? And it was just, I, when those things kind of click together, it's kind of perfect. You took, um, you took them out of power completely this season, yeah. um, which I think in some ways maybe is a relief considering what's actually going on in yeah. the halls of power. Um, one of the things you've done by doing that is really proven the elasticity of the show and how the show is these characters and this ensemble and their relationship and the world that they exist in. It doesn't have to be specifically centered in one building or one even Correct. one town. How far can you stretch it? How much does that interest you? I mean, without spoiling whether they all suddenly are, you know, put sure, back into power course, at the end of, of the course. season, at what point does, does I mean, it stay I I haven't yet. I, I still think there's more to this sort of post-presidency. I mean, I'll say two things. Number one, I think, you know, it's funny that viewer's memory is short. Obviously, she was vice president of the United States. Right. I mean, the show was called Veep. And then it, all it of still a sudden, is. Right. And then she was president. And it was a very different show if you actually mm-hmm. get down to it. I mean, it just was very, very different. And this, uh, the stakes changed, but also the kinds of things that they were able to do and not do because she was president. There were certain things, I think, that where you go, well, she's president. That couldn't happen. Or this has to be a different way as opposed to Veep. And really, what that made me realize as I thought a lot about the show was it it wasn't so much about any particular job. It's really about Selena Meyer and her quest for power in general and what power is and what does mm-hmm. that mean? Because quite honestly, she had power but didn't really even have it because she right. was sort of almost like an illegitimate president in some <laughs> ways. So it really was about that. And with that in mind, and this goes back to when I first sat down with Julia and HBO and sort of talked to them about coming in on the show, this, I, I was, what we, I sort of ended up pitching out was her losing and us moving on mm-hmm. into this sort of post-presidency world. And it's still about power and it's about respect and recognition and all of these things. And I do think there's a lot to be had there. <clears throat> Along with that, 
as hard as the Trump stuff is to sort of deal with on a daily basis because he's constantly sort of stealing things from our old episodes and <laughs> doing them live in some sort of <laughs> mad kabuki show, one of the good things that is going on right now that we're just beginning to get a taste of is – and this was planned a little bit, at least as we got closer to it – is that Obama is reemerging and he is reemerging in his post-presidency mm-hmm. in a very different post-presidency, a very – high-paid book. Uh, He was just in Chicago yesterday talking about his library and what it's going to be for Chicago. He was kite surfing. Um, He's kite surfing. Hanging out with Tom Hanks. Yep. Um, But also even just the the big controversy, he got offered Mm $400,000 to speak. Selena would kill for $400,000 to speak. So all of a sudden, that stuff is starting Mm -hmm. to happen. And much like Selena, he's not an—he's not old. There's there's a, there's life there to be had. Much in the way I think you know Jimmy Carter is sort of fascinating, and by the way, Clinton is fascinating. So where is it going? I don't know quite yet. We're sort of mm-hmm. just now sort of figuring it out. And obviously, you'd never want to overstay your welcome. But I do think this sort of this post presidency still has some life in it. So I guess that's sort of where I'm thinking. I. I we don't want to keep you too no, long. You've been very generous in your please. time, but I, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you about this. I did you? I believe you worked on the season of Curb that was the Seinfeld reunion season. Yeah, of course, yeah. I, that's another thing that I think about constantly and I think does not get enough credit because this is an example, and, and I'm thinking as I ask you this about what you said earlier about the power of saying no and not doing, not, not doing the, not being seduced by everyone saying yes in the room, sure. you know. You, you guys got away with it. You gave, you did it. You did a Seinfeld reunion. You gave us more story. You gave us a tease of what it could be while making fun of it, while giving us behind the scenes. No, I mean, we were making a tremendous amount of fun of it yeah. but, and the idea of like people that do them. And yet at the same time, we shot a lot of it. I mean, yeah. you know, we didn't like necessarily, I, I think what we never quite got to was, I think we sort of set up what all the ideas were. Mm-hmm. We never got to that next level of where the things start bouncing into each other right. so that you would have seen like, oh, my God, it's heading this way. Bounce, bounce, bounce. Now it's heading this way. Oh, my God. Mm-hmm. Now it's colliding. And it's the yeah. end. So you didn't get some of those traditional sort of Seinfeld, it's all coming together moments. But you got a lot of, like, the four stories, what they would have been. Uh, yeah, it was, uh, I mean, it was the proper way to do a Seinfeld reunion, as far as I was concerned, yeah. which was basically to do a meta reunion. Was that logistically and, creative and creatively difficult to pull off? or was it, Or is it the kind of thing where... Many of you, the veterans on the writing side, certainly still seem to be friends and have a good relationship and working relationship. Everybody, and Larry can make the call. Everybody was game. I mean, yeah. I mean, you know, from the, the, the I think the cast thought it was something special and realized it would be something special. And everybody had, you know, other things going on, but sort of made themselves available. So, I mean, that the, the schedule was probably the hardest part mm-hmm. and that worked out. And then the rest was just sort of, uh, wow, I can't believe we're doing this. Yeah. But uh, yeah. What makes you laugh the hardest at this point in your career and life? Um, honestly, I think it's when a joke surprises me. I mean, I, I, I think I said a little of that earlier. Mm-hmm. It's just, I hate to say it's like, it's it's when I, I'm just, I'm not again, I'm not trying to pretend like I'm so great and I can think of every joke, but when a joke genuinely surprises me is when, and I, and it, and it, and, and I can I certainly can laugh at a good joke, but mm-hmm. I, sometimes it's a joke that I, I do you will remember laugh the last time joke. that happened? I was trying to think if there was something that hit me recently. I was trying to remember what I've been watching. Nothing's coming to mind. I should probably think of something for the future yeah. to be able to answer that question. Well, just because yeah. anecdotally, yeah. Um, 
TV comedy writers' rooms are the quietest places on earth. I mean, that's the the, the line that people say is that you know to try to make a, a com- try to make a room sure. full of comedy writers laugh. No, I mean is very obviously hard. the rooms are, can be very miserable. Ours is not <laughs> ours is not so bad. The silence drives me a little crazy. I mean, I'm the first to admit that when it's too silent. I, I, I just I think the best ideas come out of you know sort of talking and chit chatting. Yeah, people sort of angrily trying to think. Um, not so much. Um, the other thing that I think helps us a little bit for the most part is I, I don't I didn't come out of a traditional room sort of background and therefore I don't really do a traditional room. I sort of uh, I, I stand in the strong minority, but I mean we exist of people who I hate writers' rooms in the sense of the idea of. I don't like the idea of writing in a room. Yeah, I'm, I'm, right. all, I'm all good with punching up in a room. Mm-hmm. I think you can punch up and make something really funnier. But but creating stuff from scratch in a room, like sort of gang writing and that notion of sort of handing it all off to who's ever mm-hmm. – handing the writer's uh, whatever's notes off to who's ever ter- – turn it is yeah i mean look i'm not gonna lie we get jammed sometimes and then before you know it we're trying to work on things and whatever but even in those situations i still want the writer to have sort of the responsibility yeah. and whatever and i i just think that that's some of the reason on some of the more traditional i guess larger sort of network shows i think you just get a lot of sort of like joke non-jokes yeah you know, mm-hmm. like the rhythm of a joke but not a joke just yeah. because it, it came out of a room it's like imitation no, crab yeah, meat joke exactly, it feels yeah, exactly. and tastes it like, like what about it this? looks like it until like, you yeah. put it in your mouth yeah yeah, yeah that, uh, that oh, that's interesting we and by the way seinfeld no room curb obviously no room oh yeah seinfeld had no room when larry left the show what here's how it used to work i'll give you the quick version in a perfect world you the writer well, you would you the writer would pitch stories to Larry and Jerry. This is when Larry was there, and you were basically trying to get four stories approved uh, for the four what, characters. What room are you doing this in? Basically, and, and, your office. They and, would come into your office, or you'd go into their office. And you guys used to shoot. You would be out in L.A. We were yeah, we we're on the Radford lot over in Studio. And is Larry holding a putting a At putter? That point, a he didn't nine necessarily iron? have a putter, but often had things in his hand and was just kind of cracking his neck and things like that. Okay, and, I just wanted to and set it the full was scene. very unemotional. Yes or no. He liked it or he didn't, which is always great. Like. I can hate your idea, still like you. I mean, that's something yeah. I try and make sure my writers are very clear on. Like, even when I'm annoyed at an idea, I don't l- dislike you. It's just, let's just hate the idea and hate it and not worry about everybody's feelings. It's just too much nonsense with the feelings. So anyway, you try and get the four ideas approved. In a perfect world, you might have one of the stories that gets two characters. That's a good one because there's a little more room to oh, move yeah. if you got like a George Lane story together. Mm-hmm. Anyway, you're getting your four stories approved. Then you start the outline process. You you work basically up an outline. In those days, you would do like uh, like an, an act one. And you get them in and this keeps happening. And, you know, especially in the early days, what I really learned was I remember the first time I put up a full, what I thought was an act of a sitcom in my mind. And they came in and they kind of mushed it down to two scenes. Oh. And beyond the thickness and the speed, obviously. That Davey you start and Larry to, and Jerry. Larry and Jerry. Okay. And obviously the speed that gets associated with the show. All of a sudden, you keep doing that and where other sitcoms end starts to become like your fourth scene. Mm-hmm. And that's part of why Seinfeld is Seinfeld, if you think about it. Not that so much it's about where other sitcoms end, but it's basically, you know, you see these traditional shows where like 
I don't know, you know, it's like we're having a fight about taking out the trash, and then it's not going to take the trash out, and then you take the trash out. Even if you were going to do that in Seinfeld world, that's not going to be the last scene of your show. You're going to take the trash out in scene two. You've decided you yeah. have to take the trash out. And now you've still got all this show, so what happens? Well, now you're taking the trash out, and you get hit by a car. These are obviously not real things. Yeah. I'm just simply making it up. But you understand how all of a sudden now mm -hmm. the shitty take the trash out story in Seinfeld world, because it's ending in, in scene two or three, is forcing you to now go somewhere else as opposed, to, yeah. as opposed to as opposed to an entire slow motion show that just feels like it's like syrup that, that you know nothing happens till the end do you think jerry gets enough credit for his non-acting creative voice on it because it's interesting you mentioned how michael doesn't get enough credit i agree larry gets a lot of credit and certainly deserved credit julia still will never not win an sure. emmy um jerry's done fine i don't mean like he's <laughs> underappreciated but what I mean is, I, I, I don't know if people realize his name people, is on the show, and he's I he was. People, I think people forget that it was him, him and Larry, obviously. I right. I mean that in a bad way, and I think people also forget that we carried on without Larry, you know, mm -hmm. and, and that while, um, you know, I think we did two years without Larry, and while not everybody loved the second year of it, and they were probably rightfully so. Um, people really dug the first year without That's great, it, yeah. you know, so, mm -hmm. you know, and even in the last one, there's probably some good stuff. And dare I say, and this is all hindsight, you know, I think if we'd recharged a little more, maybe brought in a little new blood, I think the show could have gone on a little longer. I think we just wore ourselves out on that first year without Larry trying to cover. On that, uh, this is probably, I was going to place that to end, but do you feel the same way about Veep? Like, does that have like the same kind of legs? Um, I mean, I get, right now I feel like, like I said, this like, uh, you know, and I think people will see where we kind of get to with the end of this post-presidency, not the end of, but where we end this season with sort of the post-presidency and the library and stuff. And I think you'll see that sort of like, yeah, there could be some more here. And then I laugh because like, you know, and I'm not, this is not a story or maybe it's a story. I haven't even really gotten there yet. But, you know, the other day there was stuff about like, you know, Hillary, uh, not Hillary, uh, Chelsea Clinton, like, is she going to run for office? Yeah. And I started to think to myself, well, does that mean should Catherine run for office? What right. would that do to Selena? And I'm not saying that's next season or the season after or the season after, but it's just like there's there's always more because again it, it's about I mean, at the end of the day, it's about Selena the character and this desire to be important and make a mark on history. And she's gonna do it any way she can. And maybe that means as the the, the you know, her progeny. I don't know. But I mean, I do think there's still a lot of life in the character. American Dynasty. I can't wait. Um, there's a lot of life clearly in the show as well. David, thank you so much oh, for taking time. Thank you so much. We're, no, this was great. We're big fans. Hope you'll come back oh, for anytime, next season. honestly. Today's episode of Watch is brought to you by a little new show Showtime's putting out called Twin Peaks. What are the greatest television shows of all time? Everyone has their list. And the debates, they get fiercer every year. What critics have called the golden age of television keeps serving up beautiful and challenging contenders. Deadwood, you know, Lost, The Wire, The Sopranos. But there's no denying that many of the greatest shows being made today owe a debt to a small town in the Pacific Northwest called Twin Peaks. When it premiered in 1990, Twin Peaks broke more rules than it followed. From surreal imagery to deadpan quirk, David Lynch's uncompromising vision forced television to stretch and grow in new ways. As audiences followed Special Agent Dale Cooper into a world he called wonderful and strange, they were also stepping away from primetime culture that had grown predictable and safe. Well, David Lynch is bringing Twin Peaks back to television, and fans worldwide are counting on the unexpected. That, and some damn good coffee. Twin Peaks premieres May 21st at 9, only on Showtime. Download the Showtime app and start your free trial now. Hey guys, just want to say thank you again to Sonos. Their Playbase has revolutionized the way I watch 
television, play games, watch TV. It's just made everything sound better. It's like having a home theater in my shabby living room. I don't know why I'm knocking my living room today. My living room is fine, but it's like 10 times better now that I have a Playbase. The thing I love about Playbase is that it is so easy to set up. It's just one optical cord, one power cord. The setup is all guided through an app. The Playbase looks great. It's low profile design. It sits right underneath your television stand. It kind of makes my television look better. Uh, and, and when you watch it, when you're watching television, everything comes to life because the sound is just popping like that. It even streams music when it's off, so that's a nice bonus. Plus, since it was created for televisions that sit on stands, there's no wall mounting required. I don't know if I mentioned that. All you need, one power cord, one optical cord, that's it. You don't even have to read the manual. Everything sounds better on Playbase, so see for yourself. Go to Sonos.com to learn more. That's S-O-N-O-S.com. <laughs> 